had a lovely Christmas and almost Happy New Year to everybody in our Mount Pleasant campus and Alma and St. John's campus and uh, online as well. Uh, it's wonderful to be back together again. Um, our Alma campus, I just got to give a shout out if I could. It's our second service in the brand new facility right in the heart of Alma. And I just know that God has got great things in store for Gratia County this year. Praise God for all that he's doing there. Next week, we're going to begin a brand new series to kind of launch into 2024 uh, called uh, Send Me. And so what we're doing right now is we're wrapping up a series that we've been in since the beginning of December, which has been all about the gospel, all about salvation. And in uh, January, um, we're going to launch um, a series that really is all about um, the Great Commission, which is really about discipleship, or making disciples, or being a disciple, and following Jesus. And so we're looking forward to, to diving into all of that. At Community Church, we make no apologies for preaching Christ. We make no apologies for preaching Christ and preaching Him crucified. No apologies for preaching Christ um, on the cross and resurrected from the dead, Zero apologies for preaching Christ, coming back again, praise God. Come on soon, Lord. We make no apologies for any of those things. Um, uh, and so next week, um, I'm probably going to open up the Bible, and I'm going to be talking to you about Jesus. And if you come back here 10 years from now, and if I'm standing here, you can be rolling your eyes at me like, that guy's still talking about Jesus. What is with that guy? And I'm sorry, I just don't get tired of talking about Jesus and preaching about Jesus uh, because I believe that he is the hope for the world. Quite simply, we believe that Jesus Christ is the answer, the answer to the most significant, most important questions in the world, particularly regarding origin and meaning and morality and destiny. They are all, all those answers are found in the person who died on the cross, whispering forgiveness on each one of us. And so we will continue to preach the gospel. Today, I want to wrap up this gospel series. Um, and when you leave today, my hope for every person listening to me is that if somebody came up to you and said, I don't know what the gospel is. I don't need a million words. I don't need 10 novels on it. I don't need every avenue of every corner. Give me the main thing. Say it to me. What do I need to know? My prayer is that for everyone listening to me today, that you will be able to do that. That you will have a very clear way of communicating. Here is the guts of the most important message in the world about the most important person. Recently, I sat down with a boyfriend-girlfriend couple. I was having a chat with them, and I was talking to the guy in particular. Such a nice fella. Just, a, did you ever just meet a, a genuinely nice guy? Very, very nice fella. And he'd come to community church three times. He really likes it, really felt connected to the worship and connected to the sermons, really seemed to speak to him, and he was just uh, um, very open to all that God would, might possibly do in his life. And I just began to ask him questions like, you know, what do you believe? Where are you at with God and the Bible? And what does all this mean to you? And he wasn't rude. He wasn't belligerent. He was the complete opposite. Such a nice guy. And it was just this like, oh, I want to know more. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about these kinds of things. And he seemed very open. But at the same time, I could just tell like he just did not grasp the gospel. He, he didn't know what that was. But like, I want to know. I'm, I'm really hungry for that. And so he basically, in this conversation, said to me, after I was kind of probing and asking questions, he said to me, so are you telling me that if I cross a line of faith and I say, 
I'm a believer, then I'm going to heaven. Is that what it is? And, uh, and if I do that, I'll be a nice, I'll be, I'll be a, I think this is what, how you put it. He said, I'll be a better person. I'll be a better person if I do that. And I, I was fired up because I get fired up about stuff. I get excited about it. And I was like, no, that's not it at all. It's not about you mentally agreeing with something so that you can be a better person. I was like, you're already a really nice guy. Like, what this is about is that Jesus Christ died for you. He didn't die for you to make you a nicer guy. And I looked at him, and I, he didn't know whether he should be upset with me. I was like, I'm talking to you right now. I'm talking to a dead man. He's like, am I supposed to be annoyed with you or angry with you? What do you mean I'm talking to a dead man? Here's what it is about you. Like, it's not we need a better, updated nicer version of you. Here's the problem. You're dead in your transgressions. You are utterly lost and without God. And without him, you will spend an eternity separated from the Father. That's where you're at. Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross to make what I think is already a pretty nice guy a slightly nicer guy. Like That's not why he died on the cross. He died on a cross to take you from death to life, to transform you and make you brand new, to eradicate shame and guilt and sin in your life, and, and to make you a new creation. And he was wide-eyed. Great conversation. And he left. I know the Holy Spirit's at work in his life. I had another conversation with a guy recently, and I just started, I really started poking at him a little bit. And he's come to our church a bit, he's read the Bible a bit, a, comes occasionally, believes in God, believes in God. And uh, I said to him, let's do some role playing here. Imagine I'm your buddy and we've known each other for years. And, you know, I've got your back and you've got my back because we like grew up together. And I don't believe in church. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. I think that stuff's rubbish. Uh, but I know you like that stuff. And, you know, I've never been interested in it, but I, my, my granny died, I went to a funeral, and for the first time in my life, I was like, ah, oh, maybe I should think about this. The guy at the funeral said some stuff, got my attention. So I'm going to you, because you're my buddy, right? We've got history, and I know you're going to do me a solid here, like you wouldn't steer me in the wrong direction. So here's my question, what do I got to know? So this is me forcing him into a role-playing situation. I'm your buddy. What do I got to know? I don't want the peripheral. I don't want the, the crazy theologies that are over there on the edges. I want to know what is the heart of the thing I have to know. What's the guts of the meat and potatoes of this thing you call good news? What is it? And uh, so this guy shifted in the seat. He was not ready for this conversation. And I hope that you will be after a few minutes from now. Uh, he said, well, you know, well, you got to believe. So I'm poking at him now, and I said, great, okay, I believe. Can I go to heaven now? Is there anything else I need to do? He said, well, you got to go to church. I said, okay, I'll believe, and I will go to church. I promise you, I will go to church. Am I good now? Do I get to go to heaven? Uh, I, you have to believe, and you have to go to church. 
and you have to read the Bible. You should read the Bible. I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Am I good now? Is that it? I'll, I'll, I'll do all the things. I'll go to church, I'll read the Bible, and, and I will believe. He was not enjoying the conversation. What grade would you give him? Is that the answer? Is that an A-plus answer? Is that a C-plus answer? Did he fail the test? Well, here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that demons believe. I can't find anywhere in the Bible, I love that you're here, that it says that you must go to a church building on a Sunday and that God's keeping attendance. And if you clock up enough, when you kick the bucket, you can get through. I can't find it in the Bible. I love that you're here. Please come back. <laughs> I know people who have read the Bible cover to cover and don't believe in God. I know people who have read the Bible cover to cover and their understanding of it is obnoxious and arrogant and filled with pride. Are they good to go? So what do we do with this? What is the gospel? How does a person get to heaven? Well, if I were to tell you that there are three ways to get to heaven, what would you say? <laughs> There's probably two reactions to that. One is if you're brand new to church and all of this is new to you, you're like, okay, pen and paper, three ways to get to heaven. Tell me the three ways. Cool. If you've been coming for years and years, you're actually thinking in your head, Pastor Allen has lost it and he's preaching heresy at the end of 2023. That doesn't sound right at all. Track with me. Hang with me for just a second. I'm going to show you three ways to get to heaven. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know if I like this. First way, number one, Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. Uh-oh. I'm wrecking theology right now. What do we do with that? This, that little verse basically says, I want you to persevere in doing good. Do good. Okay, is that how we get to heaven? I got to do good. Do a lot of good. Do a whole lot of good. In fact, persistently, consistently do good. It seems to say that right there in the Bible. If I can persevere in doing good all of my life, then I can have eternal life. Sweet. Got it. No problem. Let's head out the doors, everybody, and let's do good, whatever that means. Second way to get to heaven. Same chapter, verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So there it is. Now, this is Romans talking about, is it God, this is Paul addressing the law. So the things that God says that we can do and we cannot do. And so in that verse, like it literally, kind of, it says to us, like, it's not enough just to hear about the law. It's not enough to hear somebody like me on a Sunday from a pulpit open up this Bible and tell you things about the law. You actually have to do the law. You have to act on the law. You have to obey the law. And if you can always do the law and obey the law and act on the law, then you're good to go. You will be declared righteous, sweet. We're good, right? Second way to heaven. So let's just summarize this really quick. Uh, number one, this is really easy. 
You just have to continue to do good all the time. Go for it. Or number two, you have to be a, the doer of the law. That's what Romans seems to say. But we're not done. I said three. So just before I move on to number three, these two. So let's just run the numbers on this. Keep looking at the math. Same guy. And here's where I'm going to throw an obstacle at you for option number one and option number two. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a very famous passage of Scripture, which says this. Everybody, everybody, for all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, do good all the time. Obey the law perfectly. But here's the problem. Nobody's done that. Not me. Not you, not anybody listening to me. There's nobody righteous. Nobody. Anyone who claims that today, you're a liar. You're a liar. Nobody's done that. In fact, in today's culture, I think there's a very specific lie about this idea of I can do good and I can obey the law. I think if you went out on the street to your average person, and if you asked them, are you a good person? I'm telling you right now, the majority of people would look at you and they would say, I think I'm a good person. I do. I think I'm a good person. Generally speaking, I'm one of the good ones. I'm not a bad person. I think I'm a good person. And I'm here today to tell you, on the authority of Scripture, that is simply not true. I am not a good person. <laughs> Welcome to church. You are not a good person. That's what this book claims. That's what the Word of God says about you. It turns out that deep, deep in my nature, I'm actually selfish and self-centered and greedy and jealous and false and angry and envious and filled with lust and I'm broken. I might try my best not to be that way, and you might try your best not to be that way either. And you and I might succeed for five minutes. <laughs> we might even succeed for five hours. You might succeed for five days. It's possible. But our nature, it kicks in. And all of a sudden, we revert to the way that we are. And so while God allows these two ways to heaven continue to do good persistently, continually, all your life, and perfectly follow the law, it turns out that not a single person has ever been able to do that. Not one. The Jewish people, they had the law. They loved the law. The problem was they couldn't keep the law. They tried to. They bent over backwards to keep the law. They sliced it and diced it. They embraced it. They elaborated on it. They glorified the law. They identified as a people of the law, but not one of them could keep the law. There was one man. He was very wealthy, very young. He had the audacity to come up to Jesus one day and claim that he had kept all of the law since his youth. He said that to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, with uncanny discernment, calls out his love of money, and he just walked away. He couldn't do it. He couldn't keep the law. He said he could, but he couldn't. Then you get the Gentiles. That's basically everyone who's not a Jew. If you look in the Bible, like they did not have the law. That's not how they identify themselves at all. 
So they had this option of simply continuing to do good all the time. If you just do good all the time, all your life, just do good to every person that you've ever met in your life and never make an error or a mistake in that, just do good. And in all of recorded history, there's simply no one who has ever fulfilled that. I thought about it and I'm like, who is there in recent history that perhaps could be someone that you would think, well, surely they did. Surely they did. And one person immediately popped to mind. Are you guys familiar with Mother Teresa? Right? She's a Catholic nun. And for goodness sake, if ever there was somebody that you were like, this woman did a whole lot of good, surely it was her. I, there's video footage of her quite a few years ago. And she's up in front of a massive crowd of people. And she's this tiny, tiny, bent over little woman. She looks powerless, but she had, she had a lot of clout. And she's standing in front of a massive audience. And behind her, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Bill Clinton and Dick Cheney. This is quite a while ago. And she stood up there and she began to talk about, of all the controversial things in the world, abortion. And she was saying, abortion is wrong. We shouldn't be killing babies. And Bill Clinton and Dick Cheney are squirming in their seats. They're just dying in the moment. And she finishes standing ovation, and she sits down, and Bill Clinton gets up, and it's like, what is he going to say? This is what he says. Something along these lines. It is very difficult to argue with a life so well lived. Smart boy. <laughs> he knew better than to say, well, actually, Mother Teresa, let me put you in your place. He wasn't going to do it, and so he just dodged the bullet. Why did he say that? Her life was so stinking good. She's unbelievable. She just cared for broken, forgotten, desperately lonely, sick, lepers, dying people, hospice. That's all she did. She lived in poverty all her life. Before her death, this is what she spoke about. She spoke, she spoke about a silence from God. She talked about an emptiness so great that she would look but not see God. She said for half of a century of her life, she felt no presence of God whatsoever. She bemoaned a darkness and loneliness and dryness. These are her, her words, a, an inner torture. She admitted that she was acutely aware of her public image of doing such good and calling out goodness in other world leaders and the contrast and discrepancy of her inner state. Mother Teresa herself basically said, I'm not good. I know it looks like that, but not me. And all of this is confirmed in what we just read in this powerful verse that says everybody, everybody, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's kind of hard to disagree with that. Think of any person you've ever met including myself, including you, we fall into this category. We have fallen short of God's standards. We cannot keep the law. We cannot continue to do good all the time. And God, in His magnificence, it's even harder than this. He inspects not just what you do, not just the words that other people hear, but He looks past all of that, and He looks at your heart. So, you might see somebody doing nice, noble things, and you might think, they're a really good person. In this moment, as I stand in front of you right now, I've got a very holy book 
in my hand, and I'm preaching. And the temptation is to look at me in this moment and to put me on a pedestal. The temptation is to look at me in this moment and say, well, surely Pastor Alan, right? Surely he's got his act together. Surely, and God actually is able to see past this moment, and he can see right into my heart, every one of our hearts. He sees past image management, and he sees past pretense. He knows even sometimes our insecurities that motivate the, the things that we do that even appear good to other people. He sees all of our efforts to be good little boys and girls. He sees our attempts that honestly are attempts towards vanity in front of other people and impressing people. He sees our, our, the mistakes that we've made and we seem to take the scale in our life and we say, I've done so many bad things. I now seem to, I've got to counterbalance that. I need to somehow pay that off and, and tip it in the right direction. And God's like, what are you doing? That's never going to work for you. Trying to earn brownie points with me? Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing. He sees that our hearts are corrupted by sin and rebellion and selfishness and pride and a thousand other kinds of darknesses. How many ways are there to heaven? Maybe there's no way to heaven. This is miserable. I can't do good. I don't fulfill the law. And herein lies the beauty of this story of redemptive love, because where there is no way, God says, okay, I'll make a way. This is the gospel. This man called Jesus Christ was unlike any other man, because he did what no one else could do. He kept the law, and he did good. The Son of God, in his goodness, perfectly fulfilled the law. The historic record of this man's life speaks of, it speaks like no other person ever recorded in history. I want to show you just two striking verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says about Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Do you know anybody else that's described like this? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That is a striking verse. Perfect, pure, Sinless, spotless, without defect, without blemish in his character, his conduct, his words, his attitude, his love for God, his love for people, his love for people who hated him, his love for people who killed him. Second striking verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law, this is Jesus speaking, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Everything that was required of the law was accomplished in one person. He only went about doing what the Father told him to do. He fulfilled the law that nobody else could. So, if someone today were to come up to you and say, what did Jesus preach about? Not any preacher. What did Jesus actually preach about? I think there's an easy answer to that question. Jesus, more than anything else, he preached about the kingdom of God. It's all, if you read the Gospels, read one of the Gospels. Sit down with the book of John. You can read it in 40 minutes to an hour. And you'll just see kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. I tell him parables. This story is like what the kingdom of God is like. He's talking about the kingdom of God all the time. This idea, the kingdom of God, this place where God is king, where God is king, therefore God rules, God is the monarch, God reigns, God has power and authority, God's goodness 
And what Jesus is saying is that is now coming into reality. That is now coming to bear in the human race. There is a fresh introduction of the kingdom of God and you are on the receiving end of the greatest invitation, the greatest offer ever given to not only come into the kingdom of God, but that you would also usher in the kingdom of God. What is terribly tragic, I'm sad to say this, in, in many, many churches, is many people have substituted the Jesus gospel for some other version of a gospel. Perhaps it's a perversion of the gospel. And what often happens sometimes in churches is that They'll try to convey the gospel, and here's what it sounds like. Let me communicate to you the minimum thing you have to go to do to get through the pearly gates. Let me give you the minimum entry requirements. And everyone goes, yeah, I need to know that. What's the minimum entry requirements so that somehow that you could get to the pearly gates, and they're St. Peter, and you could like pull out this get-out-of-jail-free card and flash this, here's my minimum entry requirement card, Peter. I'm good to go. And Peter goes, whoa, you've done the minimum. Come on into eternity with Jesus Christ. Where in the Gospels does Jesus ever say, and now I will proclaim to you the minimum entry requirements for getting into heaven? It ain't in the Bible. Instead, this is what we see. The kingdom of God has come uniquely through Jesus Christ. Life in the kingdom of God is now available. And if you want that, and watch these words carefully, come here. Repent and follow me. Now we're getting close to the heart of the gospel. Repent. There's a turning around. There's a change. And follow me. When you're in this scenario, when your friend comes up to you and says, do me a solid, what do I got to know? Number one, repent. That's what your friend needs. That's what I need. That's what you need. And this is where pride is such a huge issue. I don't know if you know this, but it literally says in the Word of God, he resists the proud. He embraces the humble. Why does God resist proud people? Because proud people refuse to repent. Why? Because there's nothing wrong with me. I'm good. I know what I need to know. I can do what I need to do. I don't need help from you. I don't need your advice. I don't need anything from you. That's pride. And God says, I will resist that. I'm calling you to the humility of repentance. This deep-seated awareness of spiritual poverty and ineptitude. We repent because we recognize that we are in included in the multitude of people who, as Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, have fallen short of God's standard. To repent, in a sense, is to throw up your arms and say, I give up. I'm done. I'm done trying to tip the scale in the right direction, trying to outweigh good with bad, that game. I'm done playing that game. I'm never winning that game. I'm done trying to fix me. I'm done with impression management. I'm done trying to patch me up and make me a little bit better. 2024, if I can get a few resolutions under my belt, maybe Jesus will smile at me. I'm done playing that nonsense. I'm done trying to balance out the bad for the good. I'm unable to tip these scales in my favor. 
Dear God, pride is no longer an option. I'm being honest. I'm being humble. I need help and forgiveness. This is the language of repentance. This is central to Christianity. You see, the perfect one who never sinned, who kept the law, he says, I will be the substitute in your place. He took the consequence that should have been yours. Two things. Here's the two things that ought to have been mine, ought to have been yours. Death and separation. Death and separation. A wonderful gentleman in our church passed away the other day. I did the funeral, I think, two days ago. And I looked at his widow as we placed a box of ashes into the earth. Death would say in this moment, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust, back into the ground you go. But in Jesus Christ, we recognize that he was not there anymore. That he actually is with the Father and he's at home in heavenly places. Here's where repentance never gets out of the gate. Listen to these descriptions. I've made them slightly lighthearted, but try to find yourself here. I hope you cannot find yourself on this list. Here's where repentance never gets started in a person's life. Super Christians. Muscular Christians. John Wayne Christians. I don't need a hero. I got this. Academic Christians on steroids. Seminary. I've been to seminary. I've done a whole lot of years in seminary. Seminary is wonderful. Seminary can do a lot of damage to people as well. They get filled with academics and pride. They want to imprison Jesus in historical cultural nuances in Greek and in uh, Hebrew and in exegesis. Noisy, feel-good Christians who want to manipulate Christians and Christianity into emotional feel-good. They have a hard time repenting. Hooded, mystic Christians who want a little bit of magic, a little bit of extra stuff mixed in with their religion. Hallelujah Christians who can only ever live on the mountaintop. Nothing bad can ever happen to me. They can't succumb to any difficulty. They could never admit a failure or a struggle. Because everything has to be praise Jesus, praise Jesus all the time. Red hot zealot Christians who, like the rich young ruler, think they have kept all of these commands from their youth. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to repent. Legalistics who would rather live by their own set of rules than run the risk of living in freedom. Complacents, who carry on their back, their little backpack, their little school bag, of all of the things that they did years ago. All of the achievements and spiritual badges and diplomas and spiritual trophies from yesteryear. And they love to pull them out, to put them on display to anyone that would ever suggest that they should pour out their lives to Jesus Christ. Repentance only gets out of the gate when we see what Christ meant when he said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that is? That's humility. It is humility to admit that in your nature, Man, something's not right. And in shame, I need to go to Christ in humility to turn away and walk in the opposite direction and to walk for the first time in your life in the way of Jesus. Number two, follow. Heart of the gospel. To follow on social media, that's a little different. And maybe that's the most common use of that word now. 
To follow on social media means, I'm interested. That was entertaining. Sure, you can show me more of that. That's not what Jesus means at all. When Jesus says follow, this is what he means. Lay down your life, pick up your cross, take your leave from God all the days of your life. You have a new captain. You have new marching orders. You have a new way of life. It looks nothing like the life that you had before. It is countercultural. It is unorthodox. It is not against the, it's not just against the grain. It is against your grain. It is your new filter, your new lens, your new compass, your new purpose, new meaning. It is a new way of life. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Repent and follow. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, the see the sun, but by it I see everything else. This is this new lens. I'm following Jesus. It's a new way of doing my life. Do not think the invitation to follow Christ is a quaint prayer that will get you to heaven. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's inviting you to death and resurrection. A death of self into a resurrected life that is opposite and opposed to the way that you've been doing life before. So here's the question to everybody listening to me today. Would you repent? And would you follow Jesus? There's the gospel. Would you repent? Would you follow Jesus? Is this something that you've done in your life? Have you done that? Have you repented of your sins? Are you following Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He loves you, and he died for you. Today, in this moment, he calls you to repent of your sins and to follow him. Midnight is a few hours from now. What a way to start a brand new year. A day where you come before Christ in honesty and humility. Will you repent? Will you follow him? There is no other way. This is for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Today, in obedience... We repent of our sins, and we vow to follow you all the days of our life, to change the entire trajectory of our life so that we are living for you. We repent because we're honest enough to admit that we are guilty, that we've sinned, that we've missed the mark, that in ourselves we are unable to make things right again, that we are riddled with shame and guilt and embarrassment. Today, we respond to your crazy, over-the-top love invitation. Yes, God. So would you forgive me? Would you take my sin? And would you replace it with your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ? This day, I will follow you. And the day after that. And the day after that. Into all of eternity. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. If you pray that prayer today, we want to put a Bible in your hands. Go to Connect and any of our campuses. We have a new believers kit for you. Next week, we launch our new series. Church, next week, our service times go back to the way they were. Church, I love you, but I don't want to see you until another year. God bless.